I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction. Today I am speaking with Glenn Craney, the award-winning author of The Spider and the Stone, a novel of Scotland's Black Douglas. The story of William Wallace broke into public awareness with the release of the movie Braveheart. But Wallace's story is a tragedy. He fought against great odds to lead the 13th century Scottish resistance to English domination, only to fail, be captured, and die in the most brutal manner possible before he had a chance to see his dream realized. The man who continued the fight and for a time unified the squabbling Scots clans was Robert the Bruce, and he would not have succeeded without his friend James Douglas, known to all and sundry as the Black Douglas, in part because of his colouring and in part because of his deeds. The novel begins many years later. Norfolk, England, February 1358. William Douglas paced behind the frozen earthworks that guarded Castle Rising, an old royal mint so grim and neglected that it made London Towers seem hospitable. As the Earl of Mar and patriarch of his clan of Lanarkshire warriors, he had survived English assaults on the bloody fields of Neville's Cross and Poitiers, but never had his fortitude so lagged as it did now. Drafted by King David to serve as a ransom surety for the honours Treaty of Berwick, he was homesick for Scotland, having been away for over half a year. He stole a glance over his shoulder at the East Anglian peat beds that lay north across the low broad. If he and his squire could break free of their warden, they might reach the borders and hide in the tangled briars of Ettrick Forest, just as King Robert's mossers had done half a century ago. He asked himself again, why would the she-wolf demand to meet him? Did the brooding harridan seek to be entertained by his humiliation and defeat? No fellow Scot would shame him for wishing to shun the task at hand, for inside that ice-cornice mausoleum prowled the most dangerous and reviled woman in all the isles. Isabella of France, the hoary old Queen Mother of England, had been at various turns in her infamous existence, an insatiable adulteress, a regicide and usurper of the throne, a changeling who wore armor into battle and perverted nature by making love like a man, a sorceress who had beguiled her own son by slithering into his bed at night, a necromancer who held seances with her beheaded, the gate portcullis cranked up, and a detail of English pikemen in hobnailed moots marched from the tower and across the ice-glazed boards. The Scots Earl sighed heavily, his last chance to avoid the ordeal now dashed. Led with his squire through an occulted archway, he searched the scratchings on the rampart stones for signs of Isabella's witchery. In her youth, the Queen Mother had gained a reputation for being a meddlesome princess in her father Philip's royal court in Paris, where she was said to have become privy to the heretical depravities of the Knights Templar. Bartered off to England as a marital bargaining chip in the conflict over Aquitaine, she had made good use of the cunning assassination methods perfected by those crusader monks. Her feckless husband, Edward Carnarvon, had duly earned his toll paid to hell, but only a woman who consorted with demons could have arranged so heinous a death for a deposed king. When Isabella's firstborn, Edward III, became old enough to climb atop the throne, he banished her from London, and she raged at the filly ingratitude by conjuring down the Black Death upon the Isles. Most believed that she had managed to survive these past twenty-seven years in this outpost, only because she had long ago sold her soul to the devil. And now, please join me in welcoming Glenn Craney. Hi, Glenn. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. I, I look forward to our conversation. As I always do, I'll begin by asking about you. Um, you started out as a lawyer, uh, but then you went into journalism and from there to screenwriting. So tell me about that journey and how your uh, first profession evolved into the others. 
Yes, I, I, I guess I get bored with one profession and go to the next one, but I, I think I've finally landed on one that I can stay with for a while. Um, I, I, I've always had an interest in history, even as a boy. I grew up in southern Indiana. Uh, people here often tell me they hear a twang in my voice. They think I'm from the deep south, but, but no, just, just a little north of Kentucky. My mother uh, came from Kentucky, and I, we would also often go down uh, there and visit relatives, and that's, I think, re- inspired my imagination for history. Kentucky is full of great Civil War battlefields and uh, Indian and pioneer forts, and I remember walking one battlefield there with my great uncle, whose father had fought on that field, and that, I think, uh, really ignited my interest in history. Uh, but I never really thought I would make a profession uh, using it. Uh, I, I went on to law school practice trial law for a while really didn't uh, I enjoyed some of those you know strategy parts of of trials but it really didn't feed my creative uh, desire so I took a sabbatical went to uh, for a year to Columbia University's graduate school of journalism in New York enjoyed that and then I ended up in Washington DC covering uh, national politics for a magazine called Congressional Quarterly and I also uh, cover the Iran-Contra scandal there. And while I was in Washington, I took a screenwriting course at Georgetown University. The uh, professor thought I had some talent, so maybe I ought to think about doing this full-time. So I moved to Los Angeles, had a couple of years of of screenwriting, was lucky enough to win an award from the uh, uh, Academy of Motion Pictures called the Nickel Fellowship, which is given for new screenwriters. Uh, and then from there, kind of moved into writing historical novels. So that was a, a roundabout way of getting where I'm at today. Um, you have at least five novels, it looks like, including The Spider and the Stone. Um, three historical and two classified as mystery thrillers, although at least one of those seems to have historical elements. Tell us a bit about those books, the, the other books, not sure. Spider and the Stone. Well, I, uh, unlike a lot of historical novelists, um, I don't uh, limit myself to one era uh, uh, it would probably be more helpful marketing-wise if I did that, but I guess it's the journalistic background of me. I kind of follow the story, and as I guess we'll talk about uh, in a little bit, the stories often find me. Um, the first book I wrote was uh, set during the Albigensian Crusade in southern, what is now southern France during the uh, 13th century. Uh, after that came the second one was The Spider and the Stone. This uh, really... This all started with uh, Spider with about 15 years ago. The third one uh, was a story set in the Age of Discovery and uh, Portugal at the time of Henry the Navigator. And that one I saw as a, a more of a dual-time uh, historical mystery thriller. First time I had done that type of genre. Uh, I did another one called The Loose Virgin with my uh, a writing partner, John Jeter. And then the most recent one I've written, I moved all the way up into the Great Depression and World War I uh, called The Yanks Are Starving, which was a story about the, the Bonus Army, which was a group of uh, homeless, jobless World War I veterans who marched on Washington, D.C. during the Great Depression and held the city under siege for some. So as you can see, I, I kind of flit around from, from century to century. So did you just republish uh, The Spider in the Stone, or did that take a while? Because it's listed as 2014. It is. It, I, I originally wrote the story as a screenplay, 
And, uh, you know, I got some interest in Hollywood with it. Uh, Sean Connery's company, uh, they liked the story, but they thought Sean was, would be too old to play the Black Douglas. So they, uh, they, they passed on it. And then um, uh, as, as I got more disillusioned, I guess you would say, with the whole Hollywood scene and, and the writing of screenplays and how they're, they're really funneled through different writers, I decided to, uh, to take all of these screenplays that I had written and turn them into historical novels. So at least for the first three that I had written, I had uh, created those as screenplays first and then converted them into novel so that's why it took me so long i guess to finally get around to doing it that's really interesting um i would love to talk about uh that part of it as well um maybe towards the end of the interview sure, sure. um you but what attracts what made you decide to write about the black douglas well the the story chose me and i mean that literally uh i often get uh i call it assignments i guess it's inspiration for my books through dreams and the first three books came to me that way. Um, now, people hear that, they think, well, I must be somewhat of a crackpot. But I had always thought the idea of a muse was just a metaphorical thing. But, but, but when I get these dreams, uh, they're, they're of a different quality, a different texture. And the best way I can describe them is it's like if you took a computer file and zipped it down into a very compressed uh, file. These dreams are full of names, symbols. And images that, when I have them, I, I know it's it's something different than a, than a, a regular dream. It's it's uh, it just has a different feel to me, and I know it's very important. So I usually wake up and write these down, and usually they send me off on some sort of detective quest to find out what all this was about. And so this happened with with the spider. I, as I said, about 15 years ago, I had a, re- a re- very strange dream of I was a knight in armor sitting on a horse and I was fighting a battle to the death with a woman in black robes who was armed with a sickle. And we were fighting this, this, this uh, battle with each other, this duel along a stream. And then the dream shifted to what I can only describe as it was a photograph. And I was uh, one of seven knights who was standing around a seated King in this picture of celebration. And two of the knights had, uh, had red crosses on their mantles. And below this photograph was a caption that said, Americans aid the king at Bannockburn. And the dream ended. Well, I woke up and wrote all this down. I was completely baffled by it. It made no sense to me, particularly the part about Americans aiding the king at Bannockburn. I, if, if I didn't really even know at that time what Bannockburn was. If I had come across the, the name in some point earlier, it would have been in my school days, and I would have long forgotten about it. So I looked that up, found out Bannockburn was the great victory that the Scots won against the English uh, in the 14th century. But what really confused me was, why, how could the Americans have anything to do with the Battle of Bannockburn? That was just on its face, nonsensical. Well, I, it, I ended up jumping on a plane, going to Scotland a few weeks later, trying to figure all this out. And I ended up in Stirling, Scotland, looking for information about the Battle of Bannockburn. And as I walked across what is left of that battlefield, I suddenly realized that the terrain, the landscape in my dream, the stream that I had been fighting this woman on, 
looked very similar to uh, the area which is known as the Bannockburn today. And so I started putting two to two together and realized that uh, this must have been a, a metaphorical reference to that battle. Um, I, I, the, the woman in the dream, I found out who she was. She's a character in the novel, and I, I don't want to give away too much to, to readers, but uh, she, uh, she started making sense to me, too, as I got deeper and deeper into the story. And the final uh, connection, I guess, was the American connection to Bannockburn. It started making sense to me, too, as I got deeper in. And these dreams oftentimes don't have a linear um, reference like, like we do in normal life. Sometimes they're, they're circular. And I, these, at, the, at this time, the Scots had uh, issued what they called the Declaration of Arbroath, which was basically a declaration telling the Pope to... Uh, to bug out of their affairs, uh, that they would rule their company, their country themselves, and they didn't need any help from from Rome. And I found out that it was a uh, precursor, an example often thought of by uh, our own founding fathers in the United States when they came up with the Declaration of Independence. So there is a thread I found between the founding of our country, the United States, and the and this period where Scotland had at least momentarily gained their freedom. And it sent me off in different directions. And, and by the time I got on the plane home, I had, I had uh, found my two characters. I thought it was going to be about Robert the Bruce, but instead it was about these two secondary characters that fascinated me even more. One was uh, Bruce's best friend and, and uh, confidant, James Douglas. And the other was a woman named Isabel McDuff who crowned uh, the Bruce. And so by the time I got off the plane back to the United States, I had, I had in my mind outlined the full screenplay and what eventually became the book. What a wonderful story. Um, I don't think you're a crackpot at all. I mean, <laughs> novelists are, are, you know, we're tapping into the subconscious and we routinely have people talking in our heads and, you know, doing other things, which... Uh, if you were doing it on a, you know, in the kitchen and at, while preparing dinner, it could cause your friends and family to think that you might need to be committed. But well, I, I do. I, I, I'm I'm often careful about telling that story. But uh, the Historical Novel Society did a series uh, last year called uh, uh, I forget the exact title. But it was about authors and their experiences of synchronicities in, in the writing of their books, and they they featured me as one of the examples of it. So. I found out through that that a lot, uh, you're right. A lot of authors have uh, have similar experiences and have a lot of um, unusual experiences while they're researching their their stories too, as they go on site and, and travel to some of the places. So um, that brings me to my next question: Did you need to do a lot of research to fit in? Uh, once you actually had the screenplay and you needed to start turning it into a novel, what kinds of sources did you use? Well, I, I actually did a lot of research even before I started the screenplay, um, and and it really it broke down into two two types of research. One was the travel over there. I, I visited, uh, I would say, almost every place that I wrote about in the, in the book. Uh, it's kind of my gift to myself when I write these books. I love to travel. I love to go to the, the historical sites. I think it gives, uh, it feeds the imagination. Uh, even though many of them are now ruins, you get a spatial awareness. Uh, a, 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 an understanding of the distance and the feeling of the place. And there may be some sort of mystical element too. 
Uh, There were many of these places I visited I felt that I had been there before. So I did do that, but the, the actual research of primary sources for this period, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot out there. Uh, most historians uh, rely upon the account that was uh, written by uh, John Barber, who was a poet and a uh, scholar, became the Archbishop of Aberdeen. Uh, but he he was born in the decade that the Bruce and James Douglas died. So much of his information came from hearsay. He would have talked probably to some of the older veterans who experienced some of the uh, uh, the events. But most of his information probably came from stories, traditions, uh, even legends passed down. Now, historians say they think he did a pretty good job of at least trying to stay with uh, as accurate as possible. But uh, throughout this this story of the Bruce, there, there are traditions and legends that – we really don't know whether they happened or not um, or whether they have been embellished down through the years. So that is a, a, a boon and a bane for a, uh, a historical novelist. First, you, you, there are so many gaps in the story that you're given a lot of freedom to, uh, I guess, create your own impressions. We really don't know much per- about the personalities of Robert Bruce, James Douglas, Isabel McDuff. We know a little bit more about uh, uh, the, on the English side. We've got some accounts of the temperament and uh, personality of Edward I, known as Longshanks. But on the Scottish side, um, you, you know, it, it, you just kind of have to, I had to kind of interweave and let the characters kind of come out themselves in it because there's not a lot of primary sources uh, giving us a picture of it. Well, the, the uh, detail is very rich. Let's talk a little bit about the screenwriting to novel, actually, sure. in this context, because... Writing a screenplay is a very different thing from writing a novel. You don't have, you have, as a novelist, you have to supply all of the stuff that the actors supply and the set designer and the costume designer and so on. What, what was that process like? What did you have to do to get it from A to B? Well, uh, it's interesting. Most, most authors I know go the other direction. They, they start writing novels first and then they move into screenplays. But I, I'm, I'm thankful that I went, had the opposite. Uh, experience because it taught me uh, how to create plot and architecture. In a two-hour movie, uh, there's a very specific architecture you have to use to uh, because you don't have a lot of time to to um, go off into tangents. Uh, so that helps me. That experience that helps me create the overall uh, structure of a novel. Uh, what it doesn't do, and what I had to learn to do afterwards, was get into the thoughts uh, of the characters themselves, their their point of view. You know, the point of view when you're writing a screenplay is the camera. And so all of these scenes would, would play out in my mind as if I'm sitting there with a camera. Uh, but I had to really, in, in turning the screenplay into the novel, I had to get into the primary characters ahead at times. That's really the difference in a novel figure out what they're thinking, their motivations for what, what they're doing. And it's, it, it, was, uh, it, it was difficult. It was, uh, it was a learning curve for me for a while. It's really interesting to me for two reasons. The first reason is that as a historian, that was the hardest part for me, was realizing that I had to get inside characters' heads and I had to recapture the immediate experience that they're having in that moment. Because as a historian... That's the one thing we hardly ever do. We don't have those sources for the most part. And 
even if, to the extent that we do, we're not, in, you know, it's not a creative enterprise in that sense. So it's very hard. But the second thing is that when I write a novel, the first, it's not even the first draft, but as I sit down to write it, I, I sit down to write something that is almost like a screenplay in sentences. And I have to go back over and over and over to fill in the details and the emotions. And, the, you know, I start out with this almost like it's um, uh, like notes to myself, you know, dialogue and, you know, character does this and that kind of thing. And then I go back and fill it in. So I think there's very much a, a style of doing it. But I think that you're right. The, the, the best part of writing a screenplay or watching um, a screenplay is to, to get that sense that, that the, the arc of the story is, is all important. You don't get, you know, you can't make too many tangents. You really have to crystallize it into the basic experience. Right. Well, I, uh, I, I, I've, I've been a, a, a long fan of um, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, I, I did a lot of study of their their theories of myth. And in the in Hollywood and in the screenwriting business, um, there's a school of thought that you're looking for the mythic journey when you're when you're uh, trying to write a story, at least as a movie. Behind the scenes, there are certain uh, I guess twists or plot points that that uh, every hero's journey goes through, and then if you can hit those, if you can find those points in your story, then you're, you're, you're going to have a much better chance of having a satisfactory experience for the reader or for the, uh, for the audience. So when I, when I come to a story firsthand, I feel a little bit like a sculptor who's seen a, a, a block of granite, and I'm trying to find the essence of the sculpture that's, that's hidden in that block of granite, same way with the story. I'm immediately looking for, oh, this would make it, I can see this uh, being one of the twist points or the plot points in the story and so forth. Uh, I guess once you, once you become a storyteller, it's hard to, uh, to come to a story and just enjoy it for itself because I'm the same way with movies. I can see the hand behind the curtain and what they're doing, so it's oftentimes I have to try to force myself to get away from that. But on your second point, uh, I can certainly empathize with the idea of, of uh, what a historian must go through in trying to shift gears, really, from a left brain to a right brain, uh, and I, I was—that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about how you accomplish that, because um, I would think that historians are, are are trained to avoid any type of head head switching, just what you were talking about, of trying to uh, anticipate or understand what was in somebody's motivation or head from from imagination, I suspect that that's that's not well looked upon in academia. So it it must be a uh, a difficult jump to do that. And I, I just wondered how you make that uh, might make that leap. Well, it took me a very long time uh, because I couldn't even see that that was the problem. Um, in fact, even now, if I show my husband, you know, he, now I pretty much learned to do it. But the first draft of the the uh, Russian history novel. He would look at it and he'd say, "Don't be such a historian." <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can certainly empathize because uh, I've I've found that uh, writers uh, tend to fall into two categories. They're either plotters or what they call pantsers, where they they go by the seat of their pants and they say, "I'm just going to sit down this morning and write what comes to me." I, I'm a plotter. I can't. I just simply can't do that. Uh, and I suspect historians are, are the same way that they have to see kind of the structure of things before letting imagination take over. Sometimes I've been told that I need to loosen up on the plot and just and, and 
trust a little bit more what comes comes through the characters. So, uh, but I I think every author has one or two of those tendencies. Well, the funny part for me actually is that when I'm a historian, I'm in that mode and very left brain, as you say. But writing fiction is my my out, you know, my my relaxation, my catharsis, and so I'm actually a total pantser and. When I start a story, just to get the, the juices flowing, I will create this entire plot. But And in part, it's because I want, I, I've spent so long writing my first two books, um, in, for, in part because I was having to make this mental shift, but in part because um, I was just making the story up as I went along, that after that, with the, with the third one, I th- said, well, I really have to have an outline so I know where I'm going. But... The moment I start writing, the outline goes out the window. So <laughs> I have this very elaborate outline, and I left it on page five. <laughs> it's probably still in your subconscious. You just don't realize it. It's helpful as I'm sort of roaming along. I think, well, how am I going to get to there, to that end point? But that's pretty have, much all it's good for. I have a fantasy of, of someday writing a historical novel and including footnotes at the bottom. I would love to do that, just see what the reaction would be. Of course, you would you would. Uh, the reader would be thrown out of the uh, the suspension of disbelief, but at the same time, it would uh, uh, it, maybe it would uh, give the reader some some idea immediately. Uh, you, you know, a historian, for example, uh, w- one of the things I find in reviews and and with readers is some of them conflate the the author's opinion with a character's point of view. Uh, in in this novel, in Spider, uh, once in a while, I'll get. And I understand the the reaction is that well this you told uh, you're pro Scott in this story and the English don't come off so well well I'm writing from the point of view of of two Scott characters that had a rough time of it so <laughs> if it comes off that the Scots are good and the and the English not not so much um, you know I'm not going to apologize for that because I'm deep into the point of view of of two of the characters um, uh, if if I had the uh, luxury of being able to step back in certain parts of the story and say, for example, uh, you know, Edward II, historians uh, debate now whether he was this uh, inadequate king or whether he was the uh, uh, victim of uh, propaganda by his enemies. It wasn't really as as, uh, as uh, incompetent as some people suggest. Well, that would be nice, but that you just can't do that in a historical novel. You have to choose a, a theory, a path, and go with it. Uh, fully, and of course, you're inevitably going to get people who say, uh, "Well, it could have gone the other way. You you could have uh, taken a different route. Yes, you could have, but that wouldn't have been a novel at that point." Right? No, it really wouldn't. I have to tell you, footnotes in novels drive me bananas as a reader, <laughs> <laughs> unless they're part of the novel. You know, there's uh, there's a series by um, the Jasper Ford. I may not have his name right. Where the there's actually something called the footnoting worm, and it it puts these little <laughs> footnotes. <laughs> To, to James Douglas. Tell us about him. He's 14 when we meet him. Yes, and we don't know much about him, his early life. The first time we meet him in the primary sources, um, he, he goes to France uh, with Bishop uh, William Lamberton, who is a, uh, uh, one of the diplomats for the Scottish side, and he takes James Douglas as, um, as kind of a, a protege with him to, to France. The next thing we hear about James Douglas is he's befriending Robert Bruce as a young man when Bruce is starting to make his, his move for the throne. So that's, uh, that's the, uh, what the primary sources tell about him. 
But um, we do know that James Douglas's father, Will Douglas, known as the Hardy, was a great crusader in the Holy Land. He came back and he led some of the rebel forces, uh, particularly those at Barrack, uh, where I, in essence, have my story start. And this was a, a kind of a defining moment in, the, in what would happen throughout the next 50 years. Uh, Edward I, who the, was, was uh, known as Longshanks, so most people know him as Longshanks from the movie Braveheart. He invaded uh, across the border, came to the port city of, of Berwick, and uh, a, 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 just a huge massacre, several thousand Scots. And William Douglas was taken prisoner there and um, eventually released, but then uh, taken prisoner again. And that is kind of the backstory for James Douglas. Uh, part of his, his motivation, I think, is getting revenge for what happened to his father at the hands of the English. He's a very interesting character. You're James Douglas. He seems quite complex. I mean, he's, he's sophisticated in some ways. He's very unsophisticated in other ways. Well, yeah, I, he, I, 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 that's, a, that's a very uh, uh, it's a good insight on your part. He would have he would have had uh, some sophistication from having uh, gone over to France and Paris. He would have been involved in, in court diplomacy with uh, Bishop Lamberton. He probably would have spoken French quite well. Uh, I you know I think he had, for for men of his time he would have been quite sophisticated. But he was thrown back into this maelstrom of of war and violence, and had to become a warrior uh, in the uh, in the footsteps of his father. I mean that was just. Anybody who rose up at time in Scotland, uh, unless you were in the uh, in the church, well, you had to learn how to fight. So uh, I'm sure that dehumanizes people a certain way. But in essence, what happens in this story, the way I see this story developed and early on, it's a love story, a love triangle between two men and a woman who uh, is the third element in it. And James Douglas has to constantly choose at every moment in his life between Robert Bruce and uh, Isabel McDuff. And uh, the choices he makes and the choices she makes, in my opinion, helped shape the, uh, the, the fate of Scotland during this period. So tell us about Isabel. She's, another, she's really my favorite character in the whole story. I, she's an unsung hero. Um, it, it, she was, came from the McDuff clan. And at that time, the Macduffs were known as the kingmakers in Scotland. In order for a king to be crowned, a Macduff had to actually lay the crown on the head of the king. So there was a famous saying in Scotland, no Macduff, no king. At this, at this time, when uh, uh, the, the, basically I should back up and, and tell you, uh, King Alexander, uh, I think it was in 12, uh, 1286 maybe, died unexpectedly from a fall from a horse over the cliffs. They've named the spot Kinghorn. Today, you can go visit and see the cliffs where he fell. His only heir was his granddaughter, the maid of Norway, and she uh, died in a shipwreck. That, those two tragic events set off an uh, attempt for the throne by the various clans, and there was really no one heir uh, who was clear. And the main fight came through the Bruces against the commons. Isabel McDuff was married off to one of the commons, so she would have been, her clan would have been an enemy of the Bruces. For some reason, and this is one of the great mysteries in history, and it's like holding up red meat to a historical novelist, she uh, left her husband, left her, her married clan, 
abandoned her, her family clan and escaped to the Bruces and, and helped crown him uh, king. Now, why did she do this? Well, the English at the time believed that she was the mistress of Robert, Doug, uh, Robert Bruce. They couldn't think of any other reason that she would do this other than she must be sleeping with him. I came across uh, in John Barber, he has a reference to uh, James Douglas uh, during their retreat towards the Highlands uh, with Robert Bruce. They had, they had been ambushed by the English, and a few of them escaped uh, along with their women, the Bruce uh, sisters, and Isabel McDuff was with them. And John Barber just makes one little hint where he says that James Douglas, uh, n- none among the men was of more uh, benefit or profit to the women than James Douglas. Douglas's biographer, I.M. Davis, uh, saw in that um, euphemism, and he said that Douglas was likely running a love affair at that time. Well, I went through the possible uh, candidates for this love affair, uh, and it's, it's inconceivable to me that the Bruce women, they were all married, most of them were married, those that weren't were too young, and their husbands were with them on this retreat, and they were in dire straits. They were fighting for their lives. Now, how could James Douglas be carrying on a love affair at this time, and who would it have been with? I came to the conclusion the only sensible choice was Isabel McDuff, and I uh, built the whole theory around uh, my novel that uh, he must have been in love with her. That was the reason that she came and helped Robert Bruce. And together they helped the, uh, throughout their lives. They were going to be instrumental in helping Bruce uh, achieve his destiny. Uh, I've had a couple of reviewers who said they have read everything that's been written about James Douglas. And uh, they say this theory makes sense to them. That's the first time they ever heard of it. It's the first time I've ever encountered it. I'm kind of surprised. But it's, it's one of those gaps, it's one of those mysteries in history that uh, a novelist is allowed to kind of run with. Yeah. In some ways, those are the best, right? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but I think there is, I, I, I would submit that there is some, at least some basis for, for suggesting this. Uh, I, I didn't pull it out of the blue. I, I think that uh, at least the historians and Barber himself seem to think that there was something else going on. And one of the other mysteries in, in this period was uh, James Douglas never married. And although he had a he had a son, at least one son that we know about, uh, out of wedlock, we don't know who the woman was. And uh, Carolyn Bingham, who's my favorite biographer of uh, Robert Bruce, she points out that this was highly unusual for, uh, for the uh, top advisors and counselors of, of a king not to marry because they were expected to do so because it would uh, help with the smooth devolution of titles and estates. And it was just, it was just considered uh, something that was expected to be done at the time. And she found it remarkable and mysterious and inexplicable why James Douglas never married. He would, he would have been one of the the higher ups in in Bruce's court. Uh, And so I, I, in my book and in my author's note, I suggest a reason for that as well. And I'll, I'll keep that in suspense. Yes, but you're absolutely right. I mean, marriage wasn't a love relationship in those days. It was considered to be a political and economic necessity. Right. Um, he also, in your book at least, has two other significant relationships with women. One is with another Isabel, Isabella of France. And then the other is um, Jeanne of Rouen. And I'm not sure if she's a real character or uh, is an invented one. But in any case, tell us a little bit about them, too. Yes, well, I'll take Jean, uh, Jean first. She is an invented character. She, I had to, I had to have a character to uh, 
uh, represent the woman that he would have had his son with. We know nothing about this woman. And so I, I created her to serve that role. Uh, the first, the, the, the other woman, Isabel of France, is another fascinating character to me and one who's been much maligned in history. Um, she was married off to Edward II uh, at a very young age and su- probably suffered very, very much in her early years when she came to England. Edward was not interested in it, particularly from what we know. Um, there is a lot of debate as to Edward II's sexuality. Um, at the time, it was believed that he, he took on several what were called at the time favorites, which were, some believe, may have been lovers, male lovers. One in particular was quite notorious, was a man named Piers Gaveston, and he plays an instrumental role in the, in the story, too. Isabel is, is, is a kind of a prisoner in many ways in the, in the English court. And she watches this from the English side as it develops. But she, uh, sh- she eventually turns on Edward II. He is deposed. And again, I, I'm treading on spoilers here, but she plays a, a, a very significant role in the story. And her, her path with James Douglas crosses many times. She, twice she is almost captured by him. And she comes together at the very end uh, and is instrumental in bringing peace to Scotland and England through, a, through an uh, arranged marriage. And James Douglas is involved in that as well. So um, you've actually sketched in a lot of the historical background already. I did want to hear a little bit from you about the personalities of the two kings, uh, Robert the Bruce and Edward Longshanks. I mean, they, they're portrayed very clearly here, and I assume they are at least in part your invention, because as you mentioned, the sources are pretty... Um, scarce for that period, but um, tell me how you came up with these characters. Well, we know virtually nothing at all of uh, the personality and temperament of Robert Bruce. Um, Edward, the, Edward I, we do know more because uh, he had uh, chroniclers at the time and, and people in court that, that left um, uh, snippets of, of uh, describing him. He was very ambitious very temperamental, had a fierce temper. In fact, there's a couple of, of examples. There's one story told that the, the dean of St. Paul's uh, came to court to, uh, to complain about having his funds for the, for the, the cathedral uh, decreased. And immediately when he walked into the presence of, of Edward, he, he fell down and died. Now, that may be an embellishment, but uh, people say that he had that effect. And one time, uh, Edward became so enraged with a French diplomat that he pounded him to the point, uh, physically beat him, where Parliament ordered him to pay reparations to the man. So he, he had a violent temper. He uh, was very ambitious in terms of subjugating uh, all of the Isles. He, he of course, uh, Sharon K. Penman does a wonderful job in her novels uh, talking about Edward's uh, conquest of Wales. He also had his eye on the English uh, uh, principalities in France, Gascony, and uh, when the Scots the, the Scots turned to him to arbitrate the uh, the throne when Alexander died, and uh, Edward used that as a pretext to try to conquer Scotland too. So he was rapacious. He was uh, a larger than life figure. I thought the best part there were there are many 
many flaws with the Braveheart movie, but I thought they captured Long Longshanks' uh, temperament uh, very well. The actor did in that movie. Uh, I I have if if they ever make the uh, Spider into a movie, I would love to see. Uh, oh, Patrick! Uh, oh, I can't, his name escapes me now. He's a famous English actor. Uh, anyway, there, there, I, there's uh, there's there's one English actor I think would be wonderful in the role of him, at least the way I see Longshanks. And uh, so we know more about him than we do Robert Bruce, strangely enough. So tell us about the Robert Bruce that you created. Well, when I got into when I saw the uh, got into some of the events of the stories. I started seeing a man who was very conflicted. He was uh, educated in Longshanks Court in England, and this caused great suspicion among among a lot of the Scots. Here was why would they take a king who was who he and his brothers uh, were very close to to Edward the First, uh, distantly related, and here they're supposed to come back and be king. A lot of Scots at first were, were weren't buying it, so. What I saw was a, was a, uh, a Robert Bruce who was conflicted from the very start. Uh, his his grandfather was very ambitious and very very cunning, um, and that's just the way his personality uh, came off on the page to me as someone who um, had to kind of grow into his role, uh, uh, his destiny. And while James Douglas uh, was could see the future a bit more. And he had to kind of be the man, the the the, the uh, sidekick, I guess you'd say, who is spurring on occasionally Bruce to uh, to take up the mantle of the destiny. Um, you also give very detailed descriptions about the um, Battle of Bannockburn, uh, including maps. Uh, do you enjoy writing about war? And where did you get your information? I I, I guess it's um, you, you know, as a kid, I would visit the Civil War battlefields, and I, I love to read about military history, so I guess it probably comes from that. But I had, um, I, uh, there were several things, unusual things, synchronicities happened to me when I was doing my research in Scotland. One was, uh, when I visited Stirling, uh, I had difficulties finding the actual location of the battlefield. If you go to Stirling today, the, the environs where the battle was fought are, are quite built up with housing. And uh, even historians today even debate where the actual battle took place. Uh, there's a small visitor center there, a famous Bruce monument, where they think Bruce probably had his headquarters during the initial battle. But there's a great debate as to whether or not the, the battle actually took place on the high ground uh, below the castle or farther towards the, the Bannock Stream, the Bannock Burn, which at that time would have been very marshy. Uh, it's been drained and and look, look, looks a lot different probably than it did at the time. So I, I, I was just walking around Sterling trying to, trying to come up with some sources for the, for the actual field. And I walked into a used bookstore uh, a, a block or so from Sterling Castle. And there was this gentleman sitting behind the, uh, the counter, long flowing white hair, long beard, looked like Moses to me, a very, very imposing. And, uh, I came to him, I introduced myself, and I said, is, is, is there any information you would have about uh, the Battle of Bannockburn here? And his eyes kind of flashed, and he said, why, why do you want to know? And I explained what I was doing, and he said, uh, meet me back here in an hour. Uh, I said, excuse me? He goes, I'm going to close down my shop. I'm going to take you around and show you the battlefield. Well, this gentleman, I came back in an hour. 
he closed up his shop and and uh, loaded me into an old jalopy car that was full of cigarette butts. He was a chain smoker, and it looked like he was living out of his car, really. And he, for the rest of that afternoon, he drove me around point by point, showed me where every uh, aspect of the battle took place. I later discovered his, his name was Bob McCutcheon. He was a famous Scottish bookseller, probably the, the uh, most renowned amateur historian of Bannockburn. And I just happened to uh, walk into his bookshop, and he just happened to take a liking to me. And I got a private tour that day that it's still seared in my memory. I, it felt like as if I was, I was being led around the battlefield by one of the actual veterans of the battle itself. Took a picture of him at the, uh, at the monument. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years later. But that was quite a memorable experience, and I really gained a, a, a great understanding of the battle thanks to him. That's wonderful. That's another example of the synchronicity you were talking about. Sure, and I had I had several like that driving around Scotland. Um, what what I'll tell you about that it's hard to believe, but um, there's a uh, the, the spider is a spider. Both the spider and the stone are talismans in the story that recur throughout. And I won't, I won't reveal exactly what they mean, but one of the incident, the defining incidents of the story is Robert Bruce and James Douglas are on the run from the English in the Highlands and they hide out in a cave. Well, I wanted to find out what, I wanted to see that cave. It's a very important story, but what I discovered is there are several caves throughout Scotland and even one on the uh, Isle of Rathlin near uh, Ireland that claimed to be the cave where they hit, hit out. So, I, I didn't have time or the money to go to every cave and look at it. So I decided to pick one, uh, and I chose one called the King's Cave on, on uh, Aran Island. I thought it might be the one, but I wasn't for sure. So I, I walked several miles through sheep fields and finally got to the, to the coast of this desolate coast isle and found the cave. And, and there were several caves along this uh, uh along this coast. And I said, oh, geez. I, I said, just, just give me the sign. I'm too tired to go over to every cave. <laughs> Tell me if the, which one it is, and I'll be satisfied. So I'm walking up to one cave that's got a, a metal grill across it, and, and uh, it's got a sign pointing towards the King's Cave. I go, well, here we go, another King's Cave. So I walked up to this one right after I had asked for that sign, and right on the middle of this grill is a spider in a web, a big spider. And I go, oh, this is, I can't believe this. Nobody's going to believe this. So I took a picture of it, a photo with my phone, with my camera. And when I got home, Carolyn, uh, a couple weeks later, and, and downloaded all my uh, pictures, that spider had disappeared from that photograph on that, on that uh, gate. Now, I, how do you explain that? I don't. That is fascinating. You can tell that part of the story because that's a very famous story. I, I learned it when I was a child because my mother's a member of the Bruce clan. Well, they, yeah, and, and most people, uh, they come to the story from Sir Walter Scott. Uh, he tells it uh, in the tales of a grandfather that Bruce finds the spider. But what I discovered was there was a, uh, a history of the, of the Douglas clan written several centuries before that, that historians now think uh, Walter Scott took his story from that. And in the, in the Douglas clan history, it's Douglas who sees the spider and tells Bruce about it. So, uh, I guess as a good novelist, uh, Sir Walter Scott maybe uh, embellished his his uh, account a little bit in order so the main character could have all the glory. So that's the spider. Another element in the novel is the Stone of Scone. Um, 
Uh, I was raised on stories of the stone, uh, but it plays a special role in your novel. Tell us about it. It does. The, the, the stone uh, was, was a, a hallowed uh, icon relic at the time because it was the stone upon which for centuries the Scottish kings were crowned upon. So it was very important to them. In fact, there was a belief that you couldn't become king of Scotland without first being crowned on the, uh, on the stone. Well, Longshanks, uh, in his invasion of Scotland, uh, stole the, the stone and took it back to Westminster, where he put it under the English throne, where many people have seen that stone uh, under the throne in Westminster for years and years. However, there's a wrinkle to the story. Many Scots believe that what he took back to England was not the real stone, that it was a facsimile. Uh, and I'm sure you're, you know of the, all of the um, stories of how the stone was in the 19, I think it was 1950, where four Scottish students stole it from Westminster, took it up to uh, Scotland, then it was recovered, brought back, and finally, uh, uh, in, a, in a great ceremony, uh, England gave the stone back to Scotland to keep, and I think it's in Edinburgh Castle at the moment, at least what the English believe was the stone. Right. <laughs> There are a lot of theories, and there are a lot of Scots who believe that Edward Longshanks never got his hands on the real stone, that it was hidden at the time. That's great. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you. What are you working on now? Well, I'm doing. Uh, I'm shifting gears again and writing a, a novel set during the final days of the American Civil War. So uh, that's another century I'm tackling. Um. Oh, and are you just starting it? or I'm, I'm about a third into it. I, I'd tell you more, but I'm afraid I'd scare away the muse. And, uh... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Thank you so much for, ta- for uh, sharing your time with us today. Well, well thank, thank you for having me, Carolyn. It was very pleasure. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm Sleepy Leslie. And today I've been speaking with Glenn Craney, the author of Spider and the Stone. You can find out more about him and his book, www.glencraney.com That's www.glencraney.com Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books History. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. On my blog, I upload expanded posts about the interviews, and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. You can find the posts and information about me and my books at www.cpbesley.com. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.